find Hebrews 12 in your Bible. We're going to look at verses 25 through 29 uh, this morning. Interesting passage of Scripture, but after you have found Hebrews 12, stand with me and let's uh, read it together. Hebrews 12, beginning verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can, can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which may, we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, ask that you would just uh, help us to uh, worship you in spirit and truth today. And Lord, as we do that, Lord, we ask that uh, you would just work in our hearts and minds, that you would uh, quicken your truth uh, to us, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us to uh, help illumine the word that you've given to us. And Lord, uh, we see this stern warning here at the end of this chapter, and Lord, we pray that we would heed it, that we would be wise, that we would uh, not uh, refuse the invitation that has been issued by you. And Lord, we pray uh, this morning as we worship, Lord, that our hearts would be set on you, that we would be offering that uh, sacrifice of praise to you, the fruit of our lips, that we would be... Um, offering to you our gratitude, expressions of thankfulness this morning, and that uh, we know that we don't deserve salvation and eternal life. It's only by your grace. So, Lord, we are eternally grateful to you. And so, Lord, we pray this morning as we worship that our hearts would be fully engaged and that we'd be fully attentive to you and all you have for us. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have ever been in an earthquake, you know what a frightening thing it is. I remember being in one in California several years ago that woke me up from a deep sleep around 4 a.m. Everything was moving at the same time, and I stepped out of bed and fell right on the floor. We've all been in situations where something is moving, but it is the strangest feeling ever when everything is moving at the same time. And unless you've been in an earthquake, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember going outside and hearing sirens everywhere. I remember seeing buildings on fire. It was one of the most frightening things I've ever experienced. I did some digging into the worst earthquakes in history, and there have been some incredibly large ones. The largest one by magnitude was on May 22, 1960, 
in Valdivia, Chile, it measured between 9.4 and 9.6 on the Richter scale. The largest by magnitude in the United States was in Alaska in 1964. It measured 9.2. That, folks, is the equivalent of an explosion uh, that would be 100 times the explosion of a nuclear bomb. The deadliest earthquake in history occurred all the way back in 1556. It was in Shangzi, China. It killed more than 830,000 people. The deadliest in the United States was in San Francisco on April 18, 1906. It killed over 3,000 people. The costliest earthquake in history was in 2011 in Japan. It cost over $235 billion. The costliest in the United States was the Northbridge earthquake in 1994, which cost more than $44 billion. And I'm told that every year there are some 500,000 detectable seismic disturbances that occur around the world. And the trend is that earthquakes are getting stronger and more frequent every year. And of course, the book of Revelation tells us that this is going to happen and that the worst ones in the history of mankind are going to be during that seven-year period known as the tribulation. Now, why am I talking about earthquakes this morning? Because this passage of Scripture at the end of Hebrews 12 addresses things that can be shaken and things that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, 25 to 29, contains a strong warning from heaven itself. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. And it ends with the sobering words, Our God is a consuming fire. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we have been in Hebrews, so let's go back and refresh our memory for a moment. Chapter 12 is a chapter of exhortation. After 11 chapters of doctrine, this preacher exhorts his listeners to act on the basis of what they now know. One pastor has likened this chapter to a series of B12 shots of encouragement. The shots are intended to inoculate his audience from falling away from the faith, from going back into Judaism, from returning to the Old Covenant, and to succumbing to the pressures of the persecution they were experiencing. And so he gives them three primary encouragements. The encouragement of the race, the encouragement of the rod, and the encouragement of the rewards. And I'm not going to go back over all of that in detail this morning. But the last one is where our focus was last time. He painted a vivid picture of two mountains representing the two covenants. He contrasted 
Mount Sinai and Mount Zion to show the clear difference. Here is how one author described this contrast. He said, Mount Sinai is marked by fear and terror, while Mount Zion is a place of love and forgiveness. Mount Sinai speaks of earthly things, while Mount Zion speaks of heavenly things. Mount Sinai is all about the law. Mount Zion is all about grace. The mediator at Mount Sinai was the trembling Moses, while the mediator at Mount Zion is the eternal Son of God. Mount Sinai was all about exclusion. Mount Zion is all about invitation. At Mount Sinai, only Moses was allowed to draw near to God. At Mount Zion, an innumerable company is invited to draw near. Mount Sinai brings in the Old Covenant, ratified by the blood of animals. Mount Zion brings in the New Covenant, ratified by the blood of God's precious Son. Mount Sinai was in the middle of the desert. Mount Zion will be the eternal splendor of the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, we spent a lot of time on that contrast in verses 18 to 24 a couple of weeks ago. But beginning in verse 25, the author of this book now issues a dire warning from heaven in regard to how we should respond. This warning is similar to the other warnings that we've already looked at in this book, and it employs the familiar concept of arguing from lesser to greater. But notice there's a key word that he uses as a hook here to tie the previous section to this one. That word is the word speaks. In verse 19, he referred to the voice of God speaking in such a way that the people of Israel begged Moses to ask God to stop speaking to them. In verse 24, he talked about the blood of Christ that speaks better than the blood of Abel. That blood which now speaks for us in heaven, that blood which fully atones for all those who are covered with that blood by faith. But now in verse 25, he warns, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The one who is speaking has issued an invitation, and this invitation must not be refused. In fact, there are only two possibilities for every person in this world. You can either accept this invitation or you can reject it. But you'd better choose wisely. There are eternal consequences. Now, for the sake of organization of thought, I'm dividing this brief passage into five parts. Each verse, I believe, contributes 
a different aspect of this warning. And so we're going to have, we've got five verses, we'll have five points in our outline this morning. And we begin with the refusal, the refusal. Look with me again at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. We can't afford to refuse the one who is speaking here. It is the one who warned the people in a terrifying way on earth from Mount Sinai and is now warning them from heaven. Do you remember how the author of Hebrews began this sermon? He said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. God spoke in many different ways in the old dispensation, including the terrifying way that he spoke to the people from Mount Sinai. But he has spoken his last word in his son. He has given his last word of invitation in the message of the gospel, in the word of the new covenant. And whatever we do, we'd better be sure not to refuse this invitation. Again, the argument is from lesser to greater. If men were accountable for heeding God when he warned them on earth from Mount Sinai, how much more will they be held accountable to him now that he has warned them from heaven. J. Adams warns, or he writes, to reject an earthly message from God was serious, but to reject the glorious message from the heavens about Christ is far more so. There's something far greater to fear than the experience of God at Mount Sinai. There is something worse than the fiery thunderings of Almighty God displayed there. It is the eternal condemnation that awaits those who refuse His gracious invitation. And notice He uses the term escape here. This is similar to His use of that word escape in an earlier warning. Remember in chapter 2, verse 3, he asked the riveting question, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And here he says that those who were warned from Mount Sinai did not escape his judgment if they turned away from him and his instruction. And so in the same way, none would escape who turned away from him in the time in which this was written. And it is still true today that no one will escape if they refuse his invitation to become a part of his new covenant salvation. And again, we have 
seeing that the danger is that of turning away from full faith in Christ. It's the danger of falling short of his salvation. The unbelieving Israelites who ignored God at Mount Sinai did not enter the earthly promised land. And in the same way today, those who turn away from his saving grace, whether Jew or Gentile, will never enter the heavenly promised land. You remember what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 10, verses 28 and 29? He said this, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? You think it's bad enough to say no under the old covenant? What about under the new covenant? You can't afford to refuse the one who speaks from Mount Zion. You can't afford to say no to the one who offers eternal life to all who repent and believe the gospel. Whatever you do, don't refuse his invitation. But there's a second aspect that we see in this text, and that is the reason. Look with me at verse 26. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. At Mount Sinai, God shook the earth. But he has promised a future shaking that will not only shake the earth, but the heavens as well. From Zion, God will shake the entire universe someday. Just read the book of Revelation. So what is the argument here? If unbelievers did not escape when the earth was shaken at Sinai, how will they escape when both the earth and the heavens are shaken in the future? What's the answer to that question? They won't. They won't. Now, this is a quote from the prophet Haggai. In Haggai 2.6, we read this. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven, almost verbatim from Haggai. Interestingly, the prophet Isaiah also wrote about this. In Isaiah 13.13, we read, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, The earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Now, when will the day of his burning anger occur? Well, we read about it in Revelation chapter 6. In fact, turn with me to Revelation 6 real quick. And let's read this in verses 12 through 14. Revelation 6. Beginning in verse 12. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great 
earthquake, a great shaking. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Folks, this is going to happen someday. This is divinely decreed. This will take place in what is called the Great Tribulation in the days ahead. This earth will be shaken like we have never seen it shaken before. And the heavens will be shaken as well. You know, here in Colorado, the mountains are a big thing. But the Bible tells us there is coming a day when they will no longer be where they are. They will be moved. There's going to be a great day of shaking in the future, but even the heavens will be shaken on that day. And that leads us to a third aspect here, which is the removing. The removing. Look at verse 27 back in uh, Hebrews 12. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. The author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is interpreting Haggai 2.6. He's saying that everything physical, all those things that can be shaken, will be destroyed leaving only those things which are eternal. Someday, only those things which cannot be shaken will remain. And folks, this is a tremendous warning here. Because millions of people are putting their hope in things that will one day go up in a puff of smoke. I mean, think about it. What are you putting your investment in? What are you putting your trust in? Your bank account, oh, that can be shaken. Your insurance policies, that can be shaken. The government, oh, please. What is the implication of this sober warning? That all the transient things of this world will not survive this shaking. So we had better be investing in the eternal things that cannot be shaken. Christians should not be spending their time and energy and resources on temporal, worldly things, but on the things of God, the things connected with His eternal redemptive purpose. Now you say, Pastor, when will this great shaking take place? Well, the apostle Peter wrote about it. In 2 Peter 3.10, just listen to this. He said, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. He said in verse 12, the heavens 
will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Listen to that. Not only the earth is going to burn up, but the heavens as well. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. This is that great day when everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And only those things that cannot be shaken will remain. Listen, there are certain things that cannot be shaken. God himself, his throne, his word, his church, his eternal kingdom. He has prepared a new heaven and a new earth that will never pass away. This is the realm that we're promised. This is what we need to be about. This kingdom includes the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband, as it says in Revelation 21.2. Listen, my friend, the seen world and the unseen world may coexist at the present, but the world which is seen will face a point of termination. Those who only live for this world will see all of that stuff slip through their fingers. But those who have embraced the new covenant will inherit the eternal kingdom of God, the essence of the unseen world, and we will live forever in that unseen world. What's the message here? What's the warning? You'd better be clinging to that which cannot be shaken. By faith, you'd better receive the promise of the new covenant. This was the message back in that day in which it was written, and it is the same message today. Which leads us, fourthly, to the response. Look at verse 28. Therefore... Since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with service with reverence and awe. Because we are the recipients of an unshakable kingdom, our response should be a life of gratitude and faithful service to God. But notice this is a kingdom we receive not something we earn or deserve we receive it totally by grace that's why our response is gratitude we don't deserve it we know we really deserve to be condemned for our sin but we receive that unshakable kingdom because of grace through faith in jesus christ and again notice that it is a kingdom which cannot be shaken No one can ever take it away from us. It is eternal, immovable, unchangeable. This is why our Lord admonished, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And many times they do it via uh, computers, hacking into your account. But he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither wrath, moth, nor rust destroys 
And where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Invest in the eternal, unshakable kingdom. Don't invest in the temporal, shakable worlds. And I think Paul really captures the heart that we are to have in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. He says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Set your heart on that, not on this stuff that's going to pass away. We have to decide where our focus in life is going to be. We have to decide if we're going to focus on that which will one day go up in a puff of smoke or if we're going to focus on that which will never pass away. And notice the author of Hebrews declares that our response should include two aspects. One is an internal attitude and the other is an outward action. We're to respond with gratitude and faithful service. We're to respond with a worshiping, grateful life that includes an offering of service and sacrifice to our worthy, awesome God. And of course, this is the response we must have to His amazing grace. How else can we respond? We have an unshakable, eternal kingdom that we receive totally by His grace. And the least we can do is to express an ongoing attitude of gratefulness and to offer up to Him a life of service. Well, there's one last thing that we see in this passage of Scripture, and that is the reality. The reality. Go on to verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, this goes back to the warning of verse 25. This, those who refuse the invitation to be a recipient of the blessings of the new covenant will experience God as a consuming fire. And, you know, sometimes I hear people say something like, uh, don't portray God as a wrathful, angry God who punishes sinners. Or they say, God is a God of love. Don't talk about God as one who will send people to hell. In fact, some want to say that the idea of a fearful God is the God of the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament is loving and gracious and kind. There are many people today who do not want to hear anything at all about God's wrath or judgment, His being a consuming fire. They don't want to hear that message. After all, we live in the days of Joel Osteen. We live in the days of positive, encouraging gay love, right? We live in a day when churches do market research to see what people want uh, and then give them what they want to hear, right? So they can grow their churches. 
We are not living in a day when preachers are being faithful to proclaim the whole counsel of God and to proclaim the truths of Scripture that are no longer popular. But folks, this is clearly in the New Testament. And this clearly declares that God is a consuming fire. And of course, this takes us back to the picture of Mount Sinai and the terrifying scene that was depicted there. And remember, that is what can be expected for those who cling to the old covenant and reject the new covenant. What God are they going to get? They're going to get the God of Mount Sinai. For those who refuse the blessings of the new covenant through faith in Christ, there is nothing left but the fiery judgment of Mount Sinai. There's nothing left but the eternal judgment for unredeemed sinners. And do you remember what the author of Hebrews said back in chapter 10, verse 31? He said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's a a fearful thing. But you see, it's only fearful if you fall into his hands as judge. It's not fearful at all if you come into his presence as Savior and Lord. But if he is your judge, you will experience him as a consuming fire. In essence, the author of Hebrews is saying to his original audience, Some of you have come right up to the edge of full acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you are in great danger. Whatever you do, do not fall back into Judaism and miss out on the blessings of the new covenant. Don't do that. He's saying only judgment awaits you at Mount Sinai. And that judgment is even more severe now that there has been the invitation of Mount Zion. Don't trample underfoot the precious blood of Christ. Don't say no to God's gracious offer of eternal salvation. Don't be consumed in God's fierce, unrelenting fire of judgment. Now, you won't hear that in a lot of churches, but it's what the Word of God says in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Now, of course, today, most of us here this morning are not tempted with Judaism. But we, too, can refuse God's invitation. We, too, can harden our hearts in unbelief and reject His offer of eternal life. So for us, the warning is the same. Don't fall short of God's grace. Don't miss out on the hope and assurance of the new covenant. Jay Adams asks, Why would anyone want to return to that which was fearful and that which could only be shaken and consumed? Why would we want to go to something like that? Instead, we should hold fast to the unshakable kingdom of God. You know, most of you are familiar with the account of five young missionaries 
who sought to reach the Indians in the rainforest of Ecuador in the late 1950s. Jim Elliott and his four companions had spent months planning the ministry to these Alka Indians who were stone-aged killers that had developed a strong distrust of any contact with the outside world. And of course, you know the effort ended in tragedy as the Indians killed the missionaries who went with them, uh, went to them with the love of Christ. And the world was aghast at this horrible tragedy, and they concluded that the missionaries should never have gone there. But seven years prior to this, Jim Elliott had penned a now-famous quote that put into perspective what the missionaries had done. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, the wives of those missionaries later went into those savage Indians and led many of them to faith in Christ. And all this illustrates the eternal perspective of the people of the new covenant. Hebrews challenges us to live in light of that which can never be lost, the unshakable kingdom of God. How about you this morning? Do you have the assurance that you will be part of that eternal kingdom? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Are you the recipient of the unshakable kingdom of God? Do you possess it by faith? And are you living according to that reality? Are you offering up to God a life of gratitude and faithful service? Are you living according to the fear and dread of Mount Sinai or the reverence and the awe of Mount Zion? How are you living? How does this apply to you this morning? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to apply this passage of Scripture to our own lives, that uh, we would be hearers of the Word, but doers as well. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to just know what we need to do in response, that your Holy Spirit would lead us in that response and convict us. Lord, I pray if there's any here this morning that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that are not genuinely the recipients of that unshakable kingdom, I pray that they will come to know Christ today put their full faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. And Lord, we pray that all of us would respond to Your Word and that we would um, be the people You want us to be. Help us to live according to the New Covenant. Help us to live according to Mount Zion. Help us to live according to the fact that someday everything is going to be shaken that can be shaken. And only that which cannot be shaken, will remain. Help us to live according to that. In Jesus' name, amen.